how it lights my path, how it guides my way. So for the rest of us, we are going to turn in the scriptures now and we're going to read our new series that we've started. We've just finished looking through the book of Exodus. Yep, some of you are on it. (laughs) We've just come to the end of our series in the book of Exodus, and we are now beginning a new one in the book of Philippians. So we are looking into the New Testament now. This is one of Paul's letters to the church in Philippi at the time, and we're going to read the first passage, part of the first chapter, and Steve is going to preach to us in just a moment. But if you can find it together with me in your Bibles, please do Philippians chapter 1, and we will read verses 1 down to 11. Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We shall pause it there. Let's pray for Steve as he comes to share with us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for Steve. We thank you for the gifts that you've given him, Lord. We are thanking you for the blessing that he is to our body life here. And I just ask now, fill him with your Holy Spirit. Lord, may these words that were written by a spirit-filled man many years ago, may they come alive to us today. May they be fresh for us. May we know what the Spirit is saying to us here in this time today through what Steve shares. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. A weasel walks into a bar. The barman says, what would you like to drink? Pop, goes the weasel. A screwdriver walks into a bar. The barman says, 
We've got a drink named after you. What? Philip? <laughs> a Frenchman walks into a bar with a cat on his shoulder wearing a baseball cap. Barman says, where did you get him? France, says the cat. <laughs> a velociraptor and a T-Rex were sitting in the bar, really annoyed that the Triceratops had got his drink before them. Why has he got a drink before me, said the T-Rex. He's her before us, <laughs> said the velociraptor. And Times New Roman and Calibri walk into a bar. And the barman says, don't serve your type in here. <laughs> Tenuous link now to service and to serving. We're beginning in the book of Philippians. And the book of Philippians looks at service of a different kind. Looks at serving in a slightly different way. Not in a pub, but who we serve. And how it is that we serve him. Paul begins with the words, Paul and Timothy. The translations may have it slightly differently. Servant, bondservant, slave of Christ Jesus. Sometimes we dumb down the language a little bit and like to call it servant because servant feels a little bit more gentle. These servants are paid. It basically means slave. Slavery is horrific, particularly the way that slavery was done by the British Empire and in America in recent history. Absolutely horrific. In the ancient day, it wasn't quite so bad. In the ancient world, as a slave, you could own property. As a slave, you could marry. As a slave, you could be very, very senior in the household. As a slave, you could effectively be the CEO of somebody's organization. But it was still slavery. You were still owned by somebody. And the language that Paul uses is deliberate. We are owned by somebody. We belong to somebody. And who do we belong to? We belong to Jesus Christ. And if we aren't belonging to Jesus Christ, then we're owned by somebody else. Whose slave are we? We're talking about a city called Philippi. Philippi was a significant city, a city named after Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, uh, and in a strategic location. There have been some significant Roman wars that have been fought around there, so it was a city of the Roman Empire and a significant city in the Roman Empire uh, and a place where all people were Roman citizens within that city. And Paul is writing against the background of who do we serve? Do we serve our political masters or do we serve Jesus Christ? Do we serve Lord Caesar or do we serve Lord Jesus? And I'm sure this will be picked up in the next few weeks. Paul says that he's a slave of Jesus, not a slave of the empire, not a slave of the world, not a slave of Lord Caesar, but he's a slave of the Lord Jesus. That is lying in the background of a lot of what is happening in this book. And it's written by Paul at a significant time. Paul's in prison. People aren't quite sure where he's in prison. It was probably Rome, uh, but some people think it may have been Ephesus or Caesarea. Uh, but Paul writes about, we were, again, spoilers, I'm giving too many spoilers this morning, uh, about the number of the Praetorian Guard, the number of the Caesar's own guard that have heard the gospel because he's in prison. But he is in prison at this moment. And he's writing to this church in Philippi. Why? 
Why is he writing this church, to, this letter to the church in Philippi? Unlike most of his letters, where there's a big problem that seems to be happening, and Paul's writing to sort out that problem, there doesn't seem to be such an intense problem within this letter. But there are a couple of things. Firstly, there's a little bit of internal unrest in the church. And secondly, this is a church that's under pressure. It's under pressure from some of the imperial forces. It's under pressure from living in the context of empire. It's living in, under pressure as people who are living under an occupying army, under an occupying empire. Empires are never good. The slavery is never good. And these are people that are living under that pressure. And who will they serve? What are they going to do? And Paul writes at the beginning of his letter in the way that all letters are structured, in the traditional way that letters were done, who it's from, who it's to, and then Paul always has a prayer. At the... Actually, he always has a prayer. He doesn't always have a prayer. There's an exception to that. When he's in a really bad mood and writing to Galatians, he just launches straight into it. <laughs> but normally, normally he has a prayer at the beginning of his letters. And if you don't believe me, read, read Galatians. It, it stings when you read how he writes that. It breaks all conventions in terms of how to write a letter because he's in such... He's in such a tizzy with, with the church in Galatia. But here in Philippi, he writes a prayer, a report of the things that he's praying. And as often happens with these prayers, the prayers at the beginning of Paul's letters often lay out the things that are on Paul's heart. He prays about the things he's going to talk about. The things he mentions in his prayer are the things he's going to mention in the letter. And he's praying them over as he uh, begins his letter. So there are certain themes that are emphasised at the beginning. So we're going to look at Paul's prayer. And I want us to think this morning, what do we pray about? What are our concerns when we pray for somebody else? When we're in prison, as Paul is, Paul is in a place with so much suffering and so much difficulty of his own, how does he pray for other people somewhere else? Some people who he hasn't seen for some time. Some people that his contact with is limited to somebody bringing a report to him. And that person left that place weeks ago because they had to travel to him. No instant communication. How does Paul pray in that setting? How do we pray when we pray for somebody? How do we pray when we pray for Walter? How do we pray when we pray for Debbie? What do we pray for? Do we pray for their needs? Do we pray for their family? Do we pray for their travels? What else do we pray for? What does Paul focus his prayers upon? So there are a few things I want to look at this morning. The first thing I want us to think about is that when Paul prays here, there's a clear focus on both thanksgiving and joy. He's clearly joyful and clearly thankful. This is probably Paul's warmest letter. The most friendly letter, the letter to the church that he's just got so much love flowing for them. He's not got something he's writing to them to correct them about. There's such warmth and such love that goes both ways with this letter. You can feel it as you read the way that he writes. He knew them well. Probably established this church at about 49 AD, roughly that sort of time we think. Read about it in Acts chapter 16 uh, where he met Lydia and other women gathered by the banks of the river where it's a place for prayer where they gather because there was no other place in the city to gather. So the nucleus of the church seemed to be female, at least in the early days. It met in Lydia's house and she was probably one of the leaders of the church in the early stage or at least took the role of, of patron of that church. So there's something significant within that church. 
We don't know how long Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, that was the evangelistic group that was there. What a team. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke were there. We don't know how long they were there, but it was probably for quite a while before they were arrested and eventually kicked out of the city. And we read hints in Paul's other letters that he went back to visit them another couple of times. Don't read about it in Acts, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul hints. He goes back to Macedonia, where this is, a couple of times. There's a third visit that seems to come in Acts chapter 20. So Paul knew this church. He'd been there on several occasions and ministered to that church and stayed with people and loved the people that were there. He loved them. He loved this church. And this church had made a significant gift a financial contribution to the things that were happening in, uh, in Jerusalem, but also to Paul to sustain his ministry. And Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, Paul writes this. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, writing to the church in Corinth, a different city, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia, the Philippian church. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, um, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this not merely as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. They served God first before they served us. Sorry for the reminder of some people here, but it's a constant thing in my mind at the moment. It's GCSE season. Maths GCSE question. Complete this formula. Poverty and joy equals generosity. Paul writes in this. Their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of Generosity, that's where they were. Joy and poverty together expressed itself in generosity. They're a generous church and there's a warmth of love between them and Paul because they love the Lord. And for Paul, giving thanks and joy are inseparable things for him. We read this in verses three and four. I thank my God for you on your remembrance constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you. I thank God on your remembrance, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for you all. I thank God, I thank my God on your remembrance. The thanks that he gives is linked to the affection that he has for them. It's a bit difficult to know on your remembrance when it talks about on your remembrance, which is which is sort of a literal way of translating what's there it's a bit difficult to be sure whether Paul's remembering them or they're remembering Paul on your remembrance is Paul remembering that church and therefore giving thanks or have they remembered Paul and sent Paul a gift and Paul's giving thanks because of the gift that they've given it's probably a bit of both I suspect that the way that the letter is written I feel it's more likely to be Paul's remembrance of them as he remembers them he's thankful But what probably triggered that remembrance, because he's always remembering them and always praying for them, but what has given rise to this current bout of prayer for them is the gift that he's received from them that's reminded of them, of how generous and how gracious and how much poverty they are in and how much they are partners in the gospel and caused him to want to pray. Paul 
But what's remarkable about this? What does God, what does he thank God for? Does he thank God for the gift? He doesn't. He thanks God for the people who sent the gift. His focus is on the people, not on the gift. Paul receives something and then remembers the people and loves the people and thanks God for the people. And it challenged me a bit to think, how am I like with that? I'm not always thankful for receiving things as much as I should be. I don't know about you. It doesn't always enter my mind first. I catch myself sometimes praying. Well, I catch myself praying. So I pray for something, and then I see an answer to prayer. And then I catch myself saying, I haven't thanked God for that answer to that prayer. I'm sure it's a prompting of the Spirit to remind me that I need to thank God for that prayer, for that thing that he has answered. And I often thank the Lord for the thing that has happened, but not often the people that it has come through. Do we thank God for the worship this morning or for those that led the worship this morning? Be thankful for those that have led us in worship this morning. Are we focused on the things that we receive or the resource given or are we touched by the people? Paul loved the Philippian church. He loved all of them. All of them. Not some of them, but all of them. Can I get you to look around the church for a moment? Lovely group of people. There might be one or two people here that are a little bit irritating. Not, not to me, of course. But everywhere we go, there are people that we find are harder to get on with, people that are easier to get on with, people that we never seem to connect with, other people that we do connect with. Paul must have had the same experience in Philippi. There had been people there that were difficult, people that opposed him, people that spoke angrily to him, people that were objecting to him, people that didn't get involved in things when he was longing for them to get involved in. He poured himself out on something. And then these people weren't involved in what was happening. And he loved them all. And gave thanks for them all. Because that's where he was with them. And how does he thank? Well, he goes on to say that he's constantly praying. Always thanking God. In every one of my prayers, whenever he prays, he thanks. For all of them, with joy. And joy is the thing that marks this for me. Joy is something that appears in the epistle. There's about 16 different references to joy in one form or another scattered throughout the epistle. Not all of them are obvious, but, but, but there's, you know, in other words, using language like joy. But they are referring to joy uh, and joy that happens within the epistle. We're told to rejoice and all sorts of things within this epistle. There's joy that's there as Paul gives thanks. It strikes me. That joy is a special thing. There's a difference between joy and happiness. We can be happy when things are good. We can be joyful when things are bad. Joy can transcend the circumstances that we're in. Paul can be in prison and suffering and under threat of his life and still have joy because joy comes as a gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, joy is one of the markers of the Holy Spirit being poured within us, that God wells up within us this sense of deep inner joy despite everything else that's happening. And Paul is open to that. And Paul receives that as he thinks about these people. So there's thanksgiving for the people and joy, and that's just flowing out from Paul as he writes that prayer and as he speaks that prayer and flowing from Paul as he writes the whole of this letter to these people. He's thankful and full of joy. I just want to challenge myself this morning and challenge 
each of us, how much we are thankful for one another. And maybe just to give us, I'm not going to ask you to turn around to anybody. I'm not going to ask you to speak to anybody now. Just in your heart towards God. Let's just spend one moment. And let's thank God for some of the people here that we are very, very thankful for. And the other thing I wonder is how many of us feel starved of joy that would like the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon us for joy this morning, that need some of that joy from above to descend upon us, to set fire to our hearts and bring us that warmth that comes from the Lord. Maybe that's something you'd like to receive prayer for at the end of the morning. Second thing I want to talk about with Paul is the way that he loves their partnership in the gospel. He writes in verse 5, because of your sharing in the gospel, so this is why he's writing, and this is why he's thankful, because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul's got a passion for the gospel. The, The gospel is almost the glue that holds this whole epistle together. The gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And he writes about them, in my translation here, because of your sharing in the gospel. Different translations have probably expressed that slightly differently. I think sharing is a little bit too gentle. This doesn't really get the whole feel of what is happening here. The fellowship of the gospel is, is, feels a little bit weak. Is that you can be partakers of it but not really involved. It's a participation. It's participating together. It's not about sitting down eating lunch together. It's about making that lunch together and cooking that lunch together and working together to make that lunch and then eating that lunch together. It's this participation in which we serve one another and bless one another and work together and labour side by side in the production of something. It's a participation. It's going through it together. It's doing it together. It's making it together. It's serving it together as we eat that lunch. And how have they participated in the gospel? They've sent Paul a gift As we participate in the gospel, as we think about those in our church who are part of our church, who happen to meet every Sunday in a church in a different part of the world, but they're still part of us. They're still part of our church. They're missionaries sent from us that are leading churches elsewhere. And we participate in the work that they are doing every time we send financial resource, every time we talk about them, every time we pray for them. We are participating in the work that they do. So there's a participation that they were engaged with, with Paul, as they prayed for Paul and as they gave to Paul. There's a participation as they engaged in preaching the gospel where they lived, in the way that Paul was preaching the gospel where he was. And as they did that, they're participants in it. But they're also participants as they live out the gospel. The gospel isn't just talking the good news of Jesus, it's living the life that Jesus has given us. And being this transformed life and this changed people, full of joy and generosity despite suffering. I don't know the depth of suffering and pain that many people here are in this morning. But within that, there's that place for this generosity and that life of God and that joy to rise up as a marker of being participants in the gospel. It's a three-way thing. They're relating to Paul and each other, and then they're relating to God too. And Paul writes in verses 7 and 8, It is right for me to think this way about you because you hold me in your heart For all of you sharing God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and the defence and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the compassion of Christ Jesus. 
Another one of those things that's difficult, hold me in, in your heart, it's difficult to know if they're holding Paul in their heart or Paul is holding them in his heart. Again, it's, it's ambiguous the way that it's written. Probably reflects a bit of a back and forth between the two. In the primary sense is Paul holding them in his heart. But why? They share something together. They share grace together. And how do they share? They share in Paul's imprisonment because they care for Paul But while Paul is suffering where he is, they are suffering where they are. And they are suffering because of the gospel where they are, as Paul is suffering because of the gospel where he is. They're partners together. There's a a suffering that goes together in gospel partnership. As one suffers, we all suffer. But God provides for us in the midst of that suffering. And Paul's response to them in verse 8 is, I long for you. I long for you. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is something that flows from the theology that he has within him. He knows his theology such as that he knows what it is to be in Jesus together. And as we're in Jesus together, it's more than a, it's more than a we work together and we team up. There's something that binds us together and holds us together that in reality we are partners together. In reality, we are held together. It's not just we make an agreement to walk together for a season. It's not that we just agree to collaborate on this particular project. We are partners together. We are drawn together and cemented together in Jesus Christ. It's as if we're all on the same aeroplane. Bound to the same destination. You can't go anywhere else unless you're like that person on that flight the other day. Did you read about this who opened up the door in the middle of the aeroplane? Did anybody read about this in the news? Somebody who's, who's arrested for opening up the door, up the door on the aeroplane because he didn't really fancy where it was going. <laughs> but apart from that, if you're on an aeroplane, you're all going to the same place. We're all going to the same destination. If we're in the same building, we all have the same temperature. At this time of year, this building is wonderful. In the summer it's too hot and in the winter it's too cold. And if you know, we all go through that together because we have chosen to come into this building and we are in this place together. We are all in this country and we all abide by the laws that this country has. There are things that when we are in a place that something is true of all of us and it's true of a Paul knows this is true of those of us that are in Jesus Christ. The theology is that we are bound together. We're going to the same destination. We have the same temperature around us and we're going to abide by the same things. We're caught up together. And it's his practice as well. It's the way that he prays. And because of the way that he prays, he knows that this is true of this relationship that they have one with another. So let me encourage us this morning to know that we are linked with one another and that we're partners together on a deep level. It's not an agreement level. It's not as let's say, but we are in the same place and we are partners together. Final thing to talk about is that Paul has a vision for the end. A vision for the final thing that God will do. A vision for the climax of history. And that hangs over a lot of this epistle too. Verse 6 he writes, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. There's a day in the future when Jesus is returning. There's a day in the future when God will wrap up the whole of history as it seems to be now and lead us into an eternal future with him. That wonderful day of Jesus Christ. And the work that God has begun in us, 
he will bring to completion them. It's the work that he has done in us. Not the work that he's done through us necessarily, although that's part of it. It's the work that he is doing in us. The repair job that he is doing within us. That has begun. Anybody here ever had building work done? Anybody here a builder that's done some building work? Anybody here a DIY enthusiast? There comes a point when the work begins. Sometimes it's frustrating when somebody comes to your house and begins the work and does just enough that you can't undo the work that's begun and then doesn't complete the job. That can be quite annoying. But God has come into our place. And for those of us that are plumbers around here, he is, he's ripped out the bath and he's taken all the tiles off the bathroom wall and he is about to reinstall the rest of the stuff. The new bath is going in. The new bathroom suite is going in. The bathroom is being transformed. The house is being built. God is doing the work. Anybody here a procrastinator? I won't ask you because it'll probably take you ages to put your hand up. Um, anybody here that's a procrastinator will know what it is the moment you start doing something. When you started to do something, that's often the most difficult thing. This job has been begun, and I can now press on and do it, and it's all downhill from there. I'm a dreadful procrastinator, so I know what I'm talking about with those things. You know, do we know what it's like when the back has been broken of a piece of work? There's something we need to do, and we've done the hardest part now, and it's just downhill as it finishes off from here. God has begun a work in the Philippians. He's begun a job of work in us. And he will complete it. A perfect job will be done. It will be completed. The job is underway. It's, been under, it's not a future job. It's not a job that we're waiting to happen. It's a job that has begun and he is doing now. And every moment we live on this earth, every moment we relate to him, every moment we're open to the spirit, that job is ongoing and he's working in us and changing us and transforming us, and it will be completed in the future. It's a wonderful thing. That's another theme in the book of Philippians. There's still more to be done in our lives. There's still more to be done in this world. There's still more to be done as this world needs to know about the lordship of Jesus Christ and how Jesus has changed everything by his death and his resurrection. Jesus' death has conquered death, has conquered illness, has conquered sin, has conquered all that stands humanity, has set humanity free. How much of the world doesn't know that? Doesn't understand that? So there's a job for us to do to get out there to share these things. And as we do that, that can be difficult, but we're called to persevere. It can be tough, it can be slow, there can be opposition, there can be hardship, but we're called to persevere. And more spoilers as we think about this letter. This letter talks about us as being citizens of heaven, waiting to go to that heavenly place, but for the moment living here on earth as citizens of heaven. I've just taken somebody's preach for a couple of weeks' time, but never mind, they'll do it far better than I have as they talk about it. Paul talks about wanting to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings as he talks about living in the present and the sufferings but yearning towards this resurrection of the future. There's a tension there that Paul feels and that all of us feel. Anybody here feel the pressure of sufferings? One or two of us. 
Anybody here longing for that day of resurrection in the future? And that time when God will complete it all and everything will be changed. It's true, it will happen, it's real. All we need to do is persevere and keep going. Don't give up on him because he's not going to give up on us. And it's going to happen and we're going to be changed and transformed. And for the Philippian church, there was so much pressure and suffering. And Paul is writing to this church and saying that there are some among them that are caving in to the pressure of the suffering. Not all are persevering and they need to persevere. And the Roman imperial forces and the emperor and everything like that are pressing in around them. But their future is firm. Let's look as we finish at verses 9 to 11. And this is my prayer, writes Paul, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. Here he is praying into their now concerning their future. So much of the New Testament does this, calls us to look towards the future about what God is doing and how the future is breaking into the world now. But that phrase about the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here now, but isn't yet at its fullness. The work on the bathroom has begun, but it isn't completed yet. The work on me has begun and is not completed yet. There's a now and a not yet. And Paul prays this, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless. There's that future bit. Having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. He prays that their love may overflow more and more. Love is not just a feeling. Love is valuing something highly. Love is wanting someone else to thrive, somebody else to do well, somebody else to benefit so much. Longing for that thriving of somebody else. And Paul wants the Philippian church to be like that. To know a love that overflows more and more. And a love that just pours out in generosity of giving themselves and their time and all that they have for the benefit of somebody else. Of course, none of us do that to receive. Otherwise, it's not love. It's selfish driven. But if we're in an environment of love, then we'll be receiving from other people. People who are pouring love into us that we may benefit. But that's not our reason for doing it. But you can imagine what a wonderful place that is. And that's why this place is a wonderful place to be. Because people give loving one another, seeking to see the benefit of one another. And Paul prays that that love may overflow in them with knowledge and full insight. Not an intellectual knowledge on its own, but a knowledge that is driven by their experience of something. You may know what Haagen-Dazs ice cream flavour tastes like, in theory, because you read on the label what it is and what's in the packet and see the picture. But you only really know when you've had a spoonful, scoopful, pot, uh, whatever, <laughs> however it goes. That's the only point you really know. The only point we really know people is when we experience the people. Get to know them. See how they are when they're on a good day. See how they are on a bad day. That's how we get to know people. We only know Forest Hill by being here and being part of Forest Hill and seeing it at different times and going to different parts of Forest Hill and just getting a sense of it. That's how we know Forest Hill. You never know Forest Hill by reading the Wikipedia page of Forest Hill. You don't know Forest Hill from that. You just know a bit about it. Does that make sense? 
And Paul longs for this church, not just that they would have love that's overflowing more and more, but it would be with knowledge and full insight, experiencing, tasting, seeing, knowing God, knowing what it's like for one another. And why? To help them to determine what is best. Some things in this world don't really matter. Some things that we do don't really matter. Some things are extremely important. And the life of the Spirit will help us to know what are the important things and what are the less important things. What are the things that we must focus on? What are the things that we shouldn't focus on? And some of those things surprise us sometimes. And Paul is praying for them that, he would, that they would be helped to determine what is, ple- what is best. So that in the day of Christ they may be pure and blameless. So that by the time that Jesus Christ comes, there is work still to be done in us, yes, but we're so much closer to the completion at the point that he finally comes. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That speeds up. That speeds up the work on our bathroom of our lives. The fact that we're letting God do these things within us. Having produced the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. That's the final thing that he says. That it comes through Jesus Christ. It's not coming any other way. It's coming as we relate to Jesus Christ that it gets poured into our lives. It doesn't come any other way. None of the benefits and blessings that any of us have have come from anywhere else than from Jesus Christ. He's the one that we serve. Because he's the one that pours abundant goodness and blessing into our lives. I think it's the only place that you can be a slave and be far more prosperous and blessed than you'd ever be if you were so-called free. Because the one who is our Lord is the most generous, the most kind, the most giving, the most wonderful one that there is. The one that knows us inside out. The one that knows where we are and knows where he's going to take us and knows how to get us there. And it all comes from Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Or would you pour your blessing upon us as a congregation? Upon each other this morning, we each pray for those that are around us, on our left and on our right and in front of us and behind us. And we pray, Lord, for them that you will let your love overflow within them more and more. And that they would experience that life and that joy of Jesus Christ in all that they do. And that you would help them to see what is good. That you'd help them to know what it is, that the best things that they should be doing, the things to focus on and to know what is right. So that on the day of Christ, those sitting in front of us, those sitting behind us, those sitting to the left and to the right may be pure and holy and blameless. I pray that that would come through Jesus Christ. I want to commit ourselves to him this morning, to that partnership of the gospel, to that working together to that being in the same place. And would you help us to do those things we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let your living word
let your lead. 